Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show's expert series, where I talk to experts in the go-to-market domain. When I think of go-to-market, I think of three pillars of go-to-market, marketing, sales, and customer success. Customer success is probably the least understood of the three pillars on how it moves the growth needle for a startup, and one that is a powerful lever when set up well. My guest today is Rav Daliwal, who is an expert in the area of customer success. Rav has held a number of executive positions in various enterprise software companies over the last 20 years, most recently at Slack, where he founded the Global Customer Success Team. No stranger to hyper-growth startups, Rav has built and led post-sales business units at Zendesk, which is now valued at $10 billion, as well as Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft. Rav has published several books on enterprise software deployment, is a regular public speaker and angel investor, and now specializes in advising portfolios of venture and growth equity-backed firms on how best to develop their go-to-market and post-sales strategy and operations. I'm delighted to have Rav on our podcast today. Welcome, Rav. Thank you, uh, Anita. Thanks for that great intro as well. Great to be here. I feel like customer success is an area that is probably the least understood when it comes to the go-to-market motion. So maybe we can start off by talking about what is customer success and what is it not? Uh, You almost said customer service, which I think is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I think that uh, illustrates part of the the challenge. To your point, I mean, it's the least understood. I think it's the least visible, I think, as well, which is Interesting, I'm on a little bit of a one-man crusade to try and raise that visibility. Part of the challenge, and you hit on it right there in your question, is no one knows what it is. You know, everyone's heard about it, but you can ask a founder, you could ask 20 different CS leaders, you'll get a different definition. There isn't quite an industry standardized way of describing it. And what I've been trying to do through my experience and, and through conversations like this is to help people to think about at its core, if we had to define it, what is it about? And really, customer success is the function in the startup that helps the customer accelerate the speed at which they see value from the solution. And the, when we say value, we mean business value. So how do we materially impacting our customer and our own company? Because if we just marketed and sold the software and then left them to their own devices, they may see the promise of your software but it's likely to take them a very long time if they do that on their own. So the way to think about customer success is it's a function that accelerates the value of customers. So you can not only keep the revenue from customers, you can be in the best position to grow. Yeah. One of the reasons I almost said customer service, Rav, is because there's been so much more in terms of technology solutions and hence marketing by the vendors on the part which is considered as customer service. I remember being at Siebel and we had a help desk software, which is probably what people think of when they think of customer service. Mm -hmm. And so that was what you heard most about customers. So I feel like customer success is definitely more of a newer terms. And in some ways, maybe people think of it as a marketing jargon to say something similar to customer service. So maybe you can demarcate the difference between the two. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that question in so much as it's a little bit cyclical because there's no agreed standard definition. There's no identifiable tech stack, although that is changing. That's something I'd love to to touch on later. And therefore, people then attach some meaning to it that they understand. But if we were to contrast customer service or customer experience, it's sometimes called customer support and customer success. The simplest way to think about it is customer service is inherently reactive 
I'm waiting for something to happen. And typically it involves the unit of work, the ticket, yep. right? some kind of notification ticket. Customer success done properly should be proactive and it's based on accounts. So, you know, if you were to look at tools, customer service would be Zendesk, ServiceMax, ServiceNow, you know, any plethora of uh, ticketing tools like you mentioned. Customer success would be typically a CRM, working proactively on accounts, and I live in CRM. So that's a kind of highly simplified way to look at it, but it's essentially reactive versus proactive. Nice, I like that. Because there's no definition, it's very easy to pivot to what you do know. Go, well, I know something else with customer in it. This sounds similar and nobody can quite unpick it. And the other challenge is, and this is, I'm going to lay this challenge on the CS profession, is CS practitioners have a habit of talking about CS interchangeably as a philosophy, as a function, and as a role. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, if I talk about CS, well, really, shouldn't the whole company be concerned with customer success? Uh, so you can talk about it as a philosophy, or you're talking about the department, or I'm a CS practitioner, I'm talking about the role. I think part of the challenge is, if you name a department in a company customer success, that unconsciously, and in some cases consciously, creates the impression that it's only this group of people who are actually tasked with caring about the long-term health of our customers when philosophically it should be everybody. Yep. From building the product to marketing it to selling it to deploying it, everybody should be caring about the term value that we're driving for customer because that drives long-term value for us as a business. So there's a whole bunch of challenges. You touched upon two very interesting points. For the first part, I, I do hear a lot about customer experience. So where does that fit into the things we've talked about? And number two, as you said, there is this philosophical view that customer success needs to be everyone's business, which makes sense and seems like the right way to go about it. But obviously, it also then results in a case where you don't know where responsibility sits, right? And people are pointing fingers at each other. Is that marketing thing to do? Is it customer success teams to do? Or is it products team to do? So how do you take this philosophy of customer success as everyone's business and actually map it to a practical way, efficiently doing that so that it doesn't become something that gets dropped? Yeah, I'll tackle the first part of the question because hopefully it's the more straightforward one, the simpler one. Customer experience is typically another synonym for customer support. Right. Although, again, sometimes that gets used interchangeably with the overall philosophy of the customer's journey with you as a company. But for the purposes of our conversation, let's define it as a synonym for customer support. So the in-depth question you have there about how do we make success everyone's business, I think we need to take a little bit of a step back and look at the SaaS startup ecosystem as a whole. If you think about the way we build software, we market software, we distribute it, and we sell it, we have radically changed that in terms of uh, DevOps, cloud, platform as a service, subscription model, and that's become normal now. But we have not in any way iterated really meaningfully on the structure of the companies that make and sell software. Those are still very much rooted in the way we did things in the on-premises era, right? And the way we did things in the on-premises area when buying software was a capital expenditure, not an operating expenditure, we organized companies in exactly the same way that they've been organized for over 100 years in industrial manufacturing. 
we created an org chart, silos, we had engineering, we had product, we had marketing, we had sales, and we had support. Each of these things were kind of semi-siloed islands with different goals and different measures because we were selling to someone who was making a capital expenditure. And the thing with that capital expenditure, it was so large generally, and they had to invest time, training, resources, infrastructure, servers, racks, data centers. Once that decision had been made, you're kind of all in, right? You're kind of like, to pull the plug on that after six months or a year, you're going to get fucked, right? So from a vendor's perspective, the problem of how do we get this solution stood up and people using it was a simple one. At the end of this production line, I'm just going to fly in my professional services team. You're going to pay us half a million dollars and we're going to do the work, right? We don't distribute by and large software that way anymore. It's much more bottoms up, right? But the company structure is still the same. So the only iteration, I, I would say a meaningful iteration in company structure is people have gone through that production line. They've, they've achieved some sort of product market and go to market fit and they're being successful. Then all these issues keep cropping up with customers that they had never thought about. They were completely unanticipated. And they're suddenly finding, well, actually deployments are taking a really long time or users aren't getting X or the proficiency of how people are using the products really low, we're getting churn risk or we're losing revenue or we're not growing revenue from these customers. So the solution is, oh, we need an organization that helps us solve those problems. And that's normally where the founder says, right, I need a success department. I need to go and hire a head of success. And, build. and the challenge there is, and that's a right instinct, that's a good instinct, but because of this organizational structure and placing this group right at the end of the production line, the analogy I always give is if this was a car company, what we would be saying to the people at the end of the production line is, your job is to deliver this car that we've built to the customer on time. They have a deadline. But then I want you to teach the customer how to drive our car because our car is slightly different from everybody else's. And while you're teaching them to drive the car, could you resolve any defects that occurred in the manufacturing <laughs> assembly process? And while you're resolving those defects, can you try and upsell them onto like buying a rear camera and a you know leather trim and then get them to come back next year and buy another car, right? That's never yep. going to work. I love that analogy. It just makes it so real. Yeah. Now that might work in the short term, but then what happens is, and this is, this is a conundrum that I speak to CS leaders about all the time is, if you do your job very well at the end of the production line, you're actually making the problem worse because what you're doing is masking product engineering, manufacturing, sales, marketing, structural defects in the business that no one knows about because you're doing crazy workarounds or manual effort to try and solve them at the far end of the production line. And so this is a very long way of saying that I'm not advocating that we get rid of the org chart or the hierarchy because as you scale a business, you absolutely need that structure because when you're moving from experimentation to a focusing on efficiency and delivery, you have to have that structure. What I'm suggesting is we change the alignment and incentive structure. So to answer your question is why can't we change the incentives of marketing, of product, of engineering, and sales to, fer to give them a portion of their incentive that drives them towards long-term value for the customer behavior? For example, right? if we're incenting engineers on the shipping a feature by a certain date, why don't we flip that and incent them on how the feature, how much usage the feature gets. Yep. 
right? Then I am optimized to learn as much as possible from the customer organization about how people use the product so I can maximize the chances of people actually using the feature. If I'm in marketing, why can't I incent my marketing team to make sure the MQLs are defined around the attributes of all of our successful customers? So then I have to work with the customer organization and say, what are the patterns of behavior and usage of our most successful customers? If I'm in product, if I make part of my incentive not just shipping X features on time, but shipping features that actually solve problems for people who are not seeing value, I've got an incentive to work with the customer organization, right? To say, tell me what people who are failing with the product, what can we build to mitigate that problem? If I'm in sales, and this is the critical one, why can't I make 5% of my salesperson's comp be based on the customer hitting a certain usage pattern within 30, 60, 90 days? Because then I have a very strong incentive to work with my aligned success person to say, what do you need to make sure this thing gets deployed and used in the right time? Who do you need to talk to? So we don't change the org structure because that's not practical, but we change the incentive structure and how we align people. Alignment is really key. I can't tell you how many businesses I've seen that, well, we've got a real problem with you know, aligning success and sales. And you, you dig into it, you go, hmm, well, sales is organized on industry vertical, but success is organized by employee size. So how are these guys ever going to align? They're working on two completely different books of business, right? Again, I wanted to just put that in a bit of context where in terms of the problem, the problem is historical. And the problem tends to try to get solved purely out of reaction to unforeseen or unmet or unanticipated customer needs. And I think really what I would advise to founders, especially early stage founders, is think about Don't think about the company as a production line, right? We have this notion of inbound selling. Typically, I'm sure you've seen this, Anita, in your experience, early stages all about inbound, right? You're getting people to come to you. You're doing founder-led selling. You you get enough traction, enough learning. You start to build a go-to-market organization. You move to outbound selling. Well, I would contend there is a third mode of selling. That's continuous Mm -hmm. selling. Inbound, outbound, continuous. So I would say... And continuous selling is, how do I maximize revenue from the existing people I have already sold? And I think I would sort of encourage founders to think about that. I'm getting good at inbound, I'm building outbound, but how am I setting myself up for continuous? Rav, you said so many things there that I really want to make sure that the audience gets. So the first thing is alignment. You make it sound so simple. I don't know why companies haven't been doing this, which is aligning the incentive, making sure that every department has some portion of Mm. their goals and KPIs aligned towards customer success. That makes so much sense. And then the other thing that you said was aligning the organizations of sales and CS Mm. to be similar, whether it's going after by vertical, by region, by, you know, size of the company. Mm -hmm. Are there other operational things like that? that companies can do. So one of the things, for example, that I've seen done, and I think it's good, but maybe you can add a few more, is having regular touch points between the customer success organization and product and Mm. making sure that the right things are getting prioritized in the product roadmap, but at the same time, balancing that with the product strategy and the vision of the company as a whole. But are there other things that you can do to make sure that the alignment between product sales, marketing, um, and customer success is good. 
Brilliant question. I would definitely agree with you on the product, and that is becoming increasingly important and is actually getting reflected in more and more tooling designed to connect CS and product because that relationship is as critical as I think as the one with sales. To, to answer your broader question, I think, first of all, it's incumbent on people who influence founders about how to build companies to get more educated about this. Now, generally, my experiences in talking to lots of other investors is it's just a case of they don't know what they don't know. So when you actually educate them on this and they go, oh, I did not know that 73% of Salesforce's new revenue comes from their existing customer base. I did not know this. And I would say, yeah, and that's why they have over 5,000 people in their customer organization, right? So, you know, it, it's part of it is education, right? So if you educate investors, you educate entrepreneurs, that's an ecosystem where hopefully everybody kind of understands, oh, it's not just inbound, outbound, it's inbound, outbound, continuous. I think the other one at a super tactical level is what I call data and signals. So I'm astounded how many successful companies I talk to and I said, so do you have any like usage telemetry coming from the system? They go, no. Or we do, but you have to kind of log into this database and it's really opaque and complicated. And it's like, how are you correlating what you are building and how people are using it then? And how are you tracking trends over time? That needs to be the forefront, I think, of every dashboard, of every board deck. Like this is the telemetry of usage. When we did X, it correlated to why, or we saw the trend shift. It's particularly important for sales and success because what you want to try to do is not take guesses at what you think works. The classic example of this is training, right? We'll solve all our customer issues by training them, <laughs> right? And training is very different from learning. Training is about the instructor. I'm going to come in as the instructor. I'm going to tell you something. Learning is about the student. And what I can tell you, and I've done this a number of times in companies, I have got the team to correlate their effort on preparing and delivering training with the usage outcome over time with the customer. And by and large, I've seen it's made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> it's like, wow, we spent 489 hours on preparing and delivering training for next to no ARR gain. And then you think, well, we need to rethink this, right? Now, I had to correlate all this manually timesheets and spreadsheets, et cetera. If you had data and signals coming at you where you could correlate the time you spent and the effort you spent on some usage-based mm -hmm. outcome, you'd be able to make much smarter decisions about not just what to build, but what engagements work with customers, what don't. In the end, in that example, we just built a bot that was in product with three or four different personas where we sort of said to the customer, you have to go through this bot first before we even think about coming on. Yep. Right? And we found much better result doing it that way, right? So I think at a tactical level, data and signals is sounds obvious, but really underestimated that actually across the whole organization, we just need to know how people are using the product in a lot of detail. In one of the companies I was in, they had heap analytics for doing this yeah. usage telemetrics, but they added it when we were Series C company, for example. Yeah, so quite, you're obviously a lot yeah. of momentum. So is that the right yeah. time to add this? Or is it like you have marketing on automation analytics, marketing ops is done very no, early? I, I would be trying to, I would be trying to bake that into the products itself mm. if you can from when you start building them. Because if you think about it, it's not just valuable for a current or future customer organization. It's valuable for everybody in that whole production line that I outlined because 
good product people have hypotheses about what to build, and then they spend their time trying to test those hypotheses, right? And in the early stages, especially in the seed stages, you don't have a lot of time, a lot of money. You better test those hypotheses as quickly as you can and discard the ones you know don't work as quickly yep. as you can. So if you don't have that telemetry coming at you, and if you don't have people who are interfacing with customers as a as another input, you run the risk of just like, well, we think this is important, so let's do yep. this. Okay. <laughs> right? I can give you an example at the other end of the production line. One of the things that customer organizations are obsessed with doing is quarterly business reviews. Well, we've got to do a quarterly business review. We have to have an executive business review. And I've seen some companies spend inordinate amounts of effort creating them, but never measuring the outcome from the customer. Whether was the customer, did they find it valuable? I don't, I don't know. We delivered it. My target was just to deliver it. And I delivered it, right? The other thing is they never correlate whether the outcome of those reviews leads to some change in usage. So it, it helps at all the levels. But in terms of actually other tactical or super practical steps, and we spoke about this before, Anita, offline, was who you hire mm-hmm. and when. One of the classic challenges for founders is when they recognize that they don't have the skill set for whether that's in product or sales or typically you see it in the commercial end, sales and success. Their instinct is, I'm going to go and find the most senior person I can find to fill this gap and build me the organization. And that's not always the right instinct, depending on what stage you are at. Because if you bring a big company executive in to a small startup that is still figuring out product market fit, or as in most cases, still figuring out go-to-market fit, that can hideously backfire. Because that person is what I call a scaler. So what their real skill set is, is saying, we have version one of something that we know kind of works. And what my job is, is to refine that and scale it and build an organization. Whereas most of the founders, they have a building gap, not a scaling gap. And so it would be better to go and hire rather than a VP sales, go hire some really good tenured AEs and charge them with figuring out what does our sales motion look like, at least version. Yep. And then either, if they're really good, you might graduate them into VP sales, but you still reserve the right to bring VP sales. And you see this in success organizations a lot mm. because it's typically the thing that founders understand the least. So I've gone to big company X and we want to be like big company X and I've hired the SVP of the customer organization. And you go, that person is 15 years removed from figuring this stuff out. So what they'll do is they'll bring their playbook, which may be 60% applicable, and they won't know how to do the other 40, so they'll bring most of their old team with them. But that old team won't figure it out either because they're so inured to working off that playbook. So similar to sales, you're saying for early stage companies, for customer success, get someone who's going to figure out what's going to work before you bring in a scale Yeah. So we talked about this idea that the challenge of customer success is highly contextual, right? So what it takes to make a customer successful in one company is going to be different in another one. A builder will, you can charge a builder, say, figure out the context. What is it, the problem that we're solving? Do we need developer engineer skills because we're selling DevOps? Do we need consultative business analytical skills? Do we need certain regulatory? Mm -hmm. What is it? Is it change management, digital change management skill, for example? right? Is that the key thing, the value accelerator we are adding? So you want to hire someone who can help you figure that out. Now, there are very senior executives who can do that and scale the organization. But the problem with them is there aren't many of them. And they're really expensive. I was going to say. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. That's really good. So is there a specific stage when they should be bringing in this person to build the customer success team? So I think you should have, whether you call it customer success or not, I think that should exist from day one, because even if it's somebody in product, because in those early stages, what you're looking to do is accelerate mm -hmm. your product market fit. And one of the best ways to do that outside of data and telemetry is working with customers, right? right? So, you know, whether that's, and it's quite common, I've seen it in early stages that a, a really good product person will wear two, two hats. As you are cranking up your go-to-market machine, sales and uh, and solutions engineering and all that good stuff, you want a more formalized customer organization there, maybe not a giant one, because what you need is to help add to the top of funnel. You need to make sure we're getting these customers deployed and seeing value quickly because we want to use those examples to sell to more people, right? You know, so you need it there. So I would say at the point where your go-to-market engine, where you've got product and go-to-market fit for at least one customer segment, maybe not all of them, but maybe one, that's when I would probably like, yeah, we need to formalize this and hire someone Maybe not a VP, maybe it's a yeah. head of or a director to help build this out because you know that you are at least getting really good at selling to small to medium business, right? Is there a rule of thumb in terms of what your customer success organization should be based on either ARR per customer, overall ARR or anything else? Yeah, it's a, it's a very common question. There isn't a great deal of good reference data on it. What I've tended to do in the past is to model, at least in the early stages, my organization on the solutions engineering organization. So if they have, a, typically they'll have a one SE to three AE ratio. I typically have always used that as a benchmark because there isn't really much data that you can go and refer to, again, because it's so contextual. But that's generally stood me well. I've kind of my mental model has been right, for every three AEs, I need a person. And then in terms of like arguing the finance for headcount, uh, what I've typically said is, hey, a median of somewhere between a million and a half to two million ARR, I would like a person for that. And that's typically generally been a two million ARR median is kind of, there was some research on that. And that's kind of where the number came out. But I think depending on what stage you're at, if you're still in that early stage startup where you're experimenting, make it a million or a million and a half because you're tasking the team with not cranking a predictable handle, you're tasking them with figuring stuff out. So make that number a bit smaller. And earlier on, you talked about incentives for sales and marketing, et cetera, to make sure that customer yeah. success is something they need to think about. But ultimately, the customer success team is at the forefront of so many different business critical levers or indicators. It's customer satisfaction, it's customer retention, it's acceleration, it's expansion revenue. Tell me a little bit about how you set up the customer success metrics or incentive system to map to what the goals of the company is. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because, you know, if you go to almost any startup at any stage, early or late, and you say, what do you comp your salespeople on? People go, what do you mean? ACV, right? What do you comp your marketing people on? A MQLs, right? You comp your CS team on CSAT, MPS, gross churn, net churn. You know, you'll give you six, <laughs> seven different metrics. That's partly because they're sitting at the end of that production line and they own a lot of stuff that nobody else wants or doesn't fit anywhere else. And I've always advocated there should be a maximum of two metrics. And those metrics should be, in the early stages, time to value. 
So what we should do is put a stake in the ground and say if a customer has you know, this level of adoption or this type of usage profile, they're seeing value. And we should target the team on every customer hitting that value metric in a reasonably agreed short period of time, 30, 60, mm. 90 days. I don't want it to be seven months in a 12-month contractual period. Uh, and then once you're past that and that becomes better understood, so you know, actually we know how to drive people and we've made enough improvements in the product or additions where this is understood and a bit more automated, then it should be net revenue retention. Because I think that is not only the core metric to show a CS team is adding value, it's how much revenue you're retaining and how you create the conditions to grow the revenue. It's actually the core SaaS metric mm-hmm, in mind, mm-hmm. right? There isn't a successful SaaS company anywhere that has NRR 100 or below. You know, it always has to be over because of the cost of customer acquisition. You know, if you're under 100, the bucket's leaking and eventually that leak's going to kill you, Mm. right? And it might kill you in five years, but it's going to kill you. So that's why I think time to value in those early stages. But once that's really well understood or much better understood, shift the team towards a net revenue retention metric. And I think that works well. Ironically, a lot of the pushback you get from that is from CS leaders themselves. Like, I don't want to own a revenue metric. And I, um, that's another thing that I'm trying to work on with the people I engage with is not only do you need to think about that, you're not going to be taken seriously and you're not going to get funding or tooling or, or a seat at the table, frankly, if you aren't able to show what revenue you're adding back. So I've seen two issues come from those metrics and maybe you can give some of your commentary on it. When you think about the first one, which is time to value, time to value works when the CS person is doing their work, but also the product works in the way it's supposed to, in the way sales has sold it. Mm -hmm. So there's all these components Mm -hmm. that ensure time to value is met, right? So the alignment we talked about earlier on the product and sales side should Mm -hmm. make sure that we don't get into the situation where CS has a unreasonable metric that they are held to that they can't fulfill. Or or minimize the chance. Yeah, minimize the chance. So is that -hmm. that how you would make sure that the other pieces are aligned to that? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the incentive thing that we're talking about. If the product is not working or is deficient in some area, stability, reliability, core feature, whatever... And that is manifesting itself with the customer organization trying to find ways to fix that. Well, you will likely not get much luck in getting the product organization to maybe prioritize that unless they've got compensation on the line. So if basically part of their comp is not fixing things or building things that actually speed up the time that it takes for the customer to see value, then there's some accountability in how they're measured and what they're measured on delivering. So I think that's why it's really important to have, and these are overlapping yeah. metrics, right? I'm not suggesting CS should have some portion of its comp metric on helping sales close the deal for sure, right? Um, but I think those alignment tools around incentives are powerful and they are underused. And then the other issue, and I've mm-hmm. seen this done both well and, and not so well, there are companies where the CS is more about farming and account expansion. And there are those in which the CS is more about engagement, usage, and customer satisfaction and less on the revenue. And I don't know if it's because it's hard to hire someone that can have empathy and keep the customer happy and also find opportunities and be thinking about closing revenue. What have you seen companies do well to straggle both of those 
objectives? Yeah, so it's an age-old conundrum. I'm going to take an, a little, another little bit of a step back into history now. So when we first started building SaaS products, they were generally not very good. They weren't that stable. They didn't really offer a lot of capability, not as much as the on-premises equivalent. And so really the CS role then, I'm talking some 20 plus years ago, was much more like what we would consider a support escalation function. So really what I'm doing is I'm trying to kind of, because there was a time, we forget this, that we had to sell people on cloud. <laughs> like, True. right, not even the product. We just had to sell them on cloud. So a lot of their job was just kind of acting like a quarterback or, well, we're in English audience to say wicketkeeper for, you know, these issues, right? Infrastructure issues, performance issues, product issues. We got better and better at delivering service through the cloud. The product started to get a bit more feature-rich, but not that feature-rich. On-premises was still better. So then the role pivoted much more towards relationship. So really what I'm doing is I'm just building relationship in business. I'm kind of soft educating people, trying to build more stakeholder alliance. And then what happened is the products got on parity and then better with on-premises. And then the problem became, wow, how do I actually get people to use the software, use it really well, understand what it's capable of, educating about the use cases? It became much more product-focused. So where I get asked the question, well, should CS be responsible for upsell and should they be responsible for uh, you know this, that, the other commercially? I'm like, yeah, you're still thinking in mode one and mode two, right? When the yeah. <laughs> you know, CSAT was when we actually... We incented them on CSAT because they were support escalation effectively. We we incented them on MPS when they were purely predominantly relationship focused. Now they are business outcome, use case, value driven. So they should be focused on revenue, right? Net revenue retention. Now to answer the second part of your question, if you've got products that are you know complex or very capable and they offer a lot and there are a lot of use cases and there's change management impact. If you're saying, I want people who can do that and are great with customers, oh, and I want them to be highly commercially savvy, can talk to procurement, do the negotiation, redline the contract, that, the Venn diagram of people who overlap on that is very small. So that goes back to the alignment thing. We Founders need to recognize that to grow revenue from the existing customer base requires someone responsible for the product health and someone for the commercial health. And this is where this idea of account teaming and alignment comes in, right? Whether it's the original salesperson or a commercial account manager, that person should be on the hook for the ongoing commercial health of the customer, and they should be aligned and have incentive alignment and territory alignment to the person who's responsible for the product usage and health of the customer. It takes nice. most of them. Whenever a customer says to me, well, should I make CS responsible for upsell, cross-sell, blah, blah, blah? I'm like, who owns the commercial relationship with your customer once you've sold them? And then there's normally yeah. silence. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the gap you have to fill. You have to make a decision. Is that the original seller or is it a commercial account manager type person? You know, the whole hunter-farmer thing. Regardless of what you decide, that person needs to be aligned and supported with someone who understands the product inside out, knows how to deploy the product, knows how to drive the change management, can uncover other opportunities. What we want our CS people to do, this is why it can be hard to hire them, is we want them to think commercially. We just don't want them to act commercially. Hmm. <laughs> we want them to be smart enough to realize there's something here. I need to bring my account management colleague back into the conversation to qualify in or out. 
And that's what I've seen works best. I really like the idea of thinking commercially, but not acting commercially as something that you can definitely find in a customer success. And I find it sometimes really disingenuous when I talk to founders and CS practitioners. Where I'm like, customers are not stupid. They know that everyone from the vendor, especially someone from the vendor who you've given to them for free, is trying to get more money out of them. They know this. They are not stupid. Yeah. <laughs> right? So don't be worried about that. Just say, hey, look, we've got a commercial aim. Of course we have. But we know we can't realize that commercial aim unless we show you so much value that you want to do more with us. And so we're in the value game. I had a great quote, which says, sales is not about driving revenue. It's about driving value. And revenue is the outcome. And I think that is actually the mindset that helps you think about creating an organization where everyone is aligned and incentive on long-term customer value because the outcome of that is more. I love it. Think value and revenue will follow. Yeah. I say this to CS people all the time. Oh, I don't, I'm not in sales, Rob. I don't want to be in sales. Okay. Yes, you are in sales. The difference is you're pulling a different lever. Your sales colleague is pulling a commercial lever and you're pulling a business value lever. Both of you cannot be successful at your job without the other one. Yeah. No, I love it. Okay. So you've now had experience at so many different companies. You advise companies. You've really seen this customer success function at different stages and across mm. different industries and verticals. Could you share some of the most common pitfalls that you see companies make when it comes to customer success? Yeah, I think the first one actually harks back to the start of our conversation, which is a lot of CS functions don't define in any measurable way the value that they're adding actually to their own business. Forget about the customer. Do you ask them, well, what's your function? Well, we do QBRs and we do check-in calls and we train. It's like, yeah, those are the activities, but what value? So what is the context? Are you a digital change management team? Are you DevOps experts? You know, what is the value that you're bringing to accelerate the value for the customer? And then how does that affect our bottom line? So what are you measured on NR or, or such? So I think the first thing is just that lack of definition mm. is a problem. Tied to that is then not having a target that you're aiming for that's materially important for the company at the stage the company is in. So at one stage, the thing that's materially important may be getting product market fit. At the other stage, it may be advocacy and net new logo. At the more mature stage, it's that net revenue retention. So not having a target that reflects what's important to the company. We talked about data as a tactical thing, not having data and signals is another common mistake. So I'm doing all these things because I think they're important. Anecdotally, they seem to be useful, but I got no way of showing whether it advances the customer's goals or my goals, right? And the risk you then have there is the team optimizes for things they like doing with the customers they like, Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Other challenges, I think the key one and the one I see all the time is CS is not integrated into the sales motion. We're not thinking about continuous sales. We're thinking our job is done once the, the deal is signed. And that is less about, oh, well, we'll bring in the team and introduce them to the customer. It's even pitching CS as a differentiator. Mm. I don't know a single customer where if you said to them, well, one of our differentiations is we can bring all this expertise for free to speed up the time it takes to get value, lower your effort, and minimize the risk in you making this purchase. So I just don't know why that's not even a slide in the sales pitch, yeah. right? The other one we already talked about at length was 
a mismatch or no territory and incentive alignment between sales and CS. I think that's one of the easiest ones mm-hmm. to fix. And I always say to founders, you will know that's the right thing to do when your head of sales fights you against why that's a bad idea. Then you'll be like, that's when you know that's the right. <laughs> and the final one we talked about product is you know not having a formalized and agreed mechanism with product. Product should, if they're good, have a strategy and a North Star strategy they're aiming to execute on. But if they're really good, they will be validating everything they're building against that strategy and then not having this incredibly valuable input that's coming from the customer base. And part of this, again, and what I end up doing with a lot of CS teams and leaders is teaching them how to talk to product. I said, if you log a ticket with them or hassle them saying, I need this feature, that is not helpful for a product person. That's going to alienate them and they're going to push back on it quite rightly come to them with a problem statement. Customer is trying to do X, and and if they can't do X, this is the impact on them and their business in financial terms, and they're solving it like this, and it takes this much effort. We need to solve this problem. Don't come to them with a feature, come to them with a problem. So, you know, those are broadly, I think, the five or six areas that I see if people address, generally, business is better. And Rev, if people want to especially entrepreneurs, founders in different stages, want to get themselves more knowledgeable about setting up this function successfully and resolving issues that come up. Are there resources, books, podcasts, anything else that you can think of that they can refer to when they need it? So one of the real differentiation and strength in CS practices, there's a massive community around it. So practitioners are very good getting together and sharing knowledge and sharing experience. It also can be a little bit of a drawback because sometimes it can be a little bit reinforcing. So sometimes a person like me will dive in and throw in what I call an electronic hand grenade and go, hey, are you sure this works? Yeah. You know, or is this just because we, you know, we think this way. But for, for entrepreneurs, there are a great set of resources, lots of podcasts. I would recommend the Inside Scoop podcast by a company called Incited, which is is very, very good, especially on tools mm. and tech. There's a podcast called Creating Customer Success by Dan and Alex, who have done an amazing job. They've effectively created the CS podcast wow. landscape. I think I was the first guest they interviewed, actually, and they've gone on and done two series, and they're looking to extend that to, to videos. There are a lot of practitioner networks. There's a customer success network, a nonprofit organization, which is online. There are the Customer Success Forum group on LinkedIn. All of these are really good resources. The team at Gainsight have written several books. My good friend Ashvin, who's Chief Customer Officer there, wrote a Practical CSM Handbook. Probably the reference book was written by Dan Simon and Nick Messer of Gainsight. I love the book, but I think it was written for a slightly mm-hmm. earlier age. So things have a kind of accelerated a little bit more beyond where the age of products were when they wrote that. But I write about some of the stuff on Medium. So I'm very easy to find some of the concepts we've talked about today around hiring and alignment. I've kind of written at length about as well. So I think those are just some resources that you know definitely spring top of mind. Uh, and I'm super easy to find. I love talking to entrepreneurs. So I'm always happy to have a chat. Wonderful. I actually checked out your articles on Medium and I found it very informative and easy to digest. So absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I've tried to distill basically 20 years of making giant mistakes into 1200 <laughs> words just to help people avoid some of those things. But... I think now as an investor, I feel it's almost like the perfect venue 
and and the perfect route into kind of helping entrepreneurs think about this from day one. So that's why I'm really happy to be doing what I'm doing now. And, and also just obviously really happy working with Scott and Christian and the team at Crane. They are they are very forward thinking in terms of, you know, they met me and they were like, ah, yeah, this is actually a skill we need to help our portfolio companies with. So really hats off to them for leaving. Yeah, absolutely. I had Krishna on the podcast and I was so impressed with the way Crane really helps their early stage companies with the go-to-market. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're really forward thinking. And uh, it's interesting in my sort of first couple of weeks at Crane, I came back from a meeting with some of the portfolio founders and I said to Scott, I was like, you do know you're not in the investment business. He went, what? What do you mean? I go, you're in the customer success business. You're in the founder's business. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, think about it. I used to sell people software and then invest resource in making them successful with the software so that they'd buy more software. And he said, yeah. I go, you're not selling software. You're selling cash. So you're giving people cash and then you're coaching and working with them and helping them to be successful with the cash. So they'll take more of your cash. I love it. Right? Sounds, sounds like customer success to me. So, you know, which is why for me, making this transition into venture has not felt like a transition at all. It's felt very, very natural. And are there um, any last words, wisdom or advice that you have that you want to share? Well, my grandfather always used to say that the worst vice is advice. He had a lot of very colorful sayings, but that was probably the, the one I can share with you on a family <laughs> recording. What I would say, and this is just more opinion, and, and I'm not the progenitor of this quote. My good friend Dan Simon is the progenitor of this quote. I think the simplest thing for founders to remember is if you are a subscription business, there is no such thing as post-sales. So try not to think pre-sales, post-sales. That's the industrial manufacturing production line, that car analogy. Try and think about inbound sales, outbound sales, and continuous sales. And how do I solve that continuous sales problem? That's kind of what I would like to leave any of the founders listening with. It's interesting that you say that, Rav, because I was thinking if I took away anything in terms of a movement that you want to create from everything that you've said, it was that continuous sale that seems so simple, so intuitive. It's like putting a label on something that people already know that they just haven't articulated as well. So I absolutely agree. There is a visual for that, which I sometimes share with founders. And I say, well, here's a three-legged stool. The seat of the stool is the customer. One leg, you've got that sorted out. That's the commercial leg. There's a technical security leg. You've got that sorted out. And then you consider the stool is finished. I don't want to sit on a two-legged stool. Yeah. That stool's going to fall over. I need that third leg. I need that continuous, you know, that success leg. How do I invest in making them successful quickly? Because then that stool is a lot more stable. Yeah. That stool is your business. Lovely. Right? Yeah. And I think we are very good at optimizing quite rightly for product and for sales. And I think there's just this third category of sales, this continuous sales that if founders can think about that from day one, while they're figuring out the other two, they'll be in a lot healthier state. So Rav, on that note, I'm going to bring the podcast to an end. Thank you so much for joining me. My absolute pleasure. And I, I will add all the links, including yours, to the podcast so that if people have more burning questions that they want to get in touch with you for, hopefully they can. But I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed our conversation on this really important topic of the third leg of the stool. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.